introduction on an evangelistic brochure, you, uh, you, you would like to meet that person. <laughs> you all are very gracious, but uh, accolades are not necessary. Um, another thing about it, uh, I have lo been looking. I, my first evangelistic meetings, actually the first couple, I uh, got so busy working, I, I would get to the church that evening just before the meeting started doing visitation and look at the brochure and read the title to know what I was going to speak on that night. <laughs> That's not a good idea. And some of those titles, when I read them, I had no idea <laughs> until I turned on the slides. Or, you know, so, uh, but I have looked and seen what, what I'm supposed to be speaking about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. <laughs> Uh, I believe it's plant nutrition, today's productivity, and uh, extending the season, and there's something else, but uh, I'll know by then. Uh, Sue is very well prepared, and we certainly appreciate the effort that she's put into this in advance. A couple housekeeping things. Max, are you handy to come up here and share with us something? I saw you earlier. Uh, here he is. Max, just speak into the microphone. I love success stories. Some of you uh, have them, and uh, as I come across you, as we share things, I say, hey, could you tell that to everybody? Come over to the mic here then, Max. Why don't you ask Sam while we hear from Mark? Over time. Max, you are where you're from. What okay. you got? Friday, my name is Max, and I'm living in Albemarle. And Friday, I decided to put, plant some seeds and carry the seeds, with, carry the seeds I had put in the little containers with me to bring them along with me to see how fast they would germinate and they would just come through the soil in the time that I was here. Okay, I left Monday, Sunday, Monday, Friday morning. I drove all the way to um, here. And on Sunday night, they were starting to sprout. And yesterday, uh, yesterday this, is a, this is a Russian sunflower seeds. And the, I only grow heirloom seeds. But this is, a, a sun, this is a Russian seed, and it's a sunflower seed, but it's broke. On Sunday, it was already down here, coming up. And I, I, it's in the car right now, and I leave it in under, uh, war, I, I water them, and I leave them inside the car, and they just grow much, much faster. It's like making beans. If you want to cook beans fast, you make them, you put them in a special ingredient, water, but you cook them faster, and there's a way to cook beans faster, in which you, I can make beans in an hour and a half or less. But anyway, this, here's another one, and I'm not sure what that is. I marked it on the outside, but the, the water and the sun is scared. Has, I can't see the print anymore, but I bought a, I bought a lot of seeds, and right now they're all, they're all up there growing. But I just want to show you that if you can, under heat, extreme heat, they'll go much faster, and they'll break through the soil. Isn't that great? Thank you, Max. Put them in your car. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And you notice that he used some peat pots. You know, these can be expensive and add to your cost. It depends on the amount of uh, seedlings you want to have and transplant. But it reduces the shock of transplanting because you plant the whole pot. You have to time it a little good, better than you would a plastic container because the roots will go through it. And the nice roots are on the outside then. And the pot can disintegrate somewhat from being wet so much. But if your timing calendar is good with nature, these will work wonderfully for transplanting. A couple other things. Are you able to hear me if I walk over here? No. no. I don't know. Okay. He did.
did say, Max said that uh, he didn't know what that plant was. Uh, that's, anybody, does that happen to you too? <laughs> the worst notes are better than the best memory. I learned that in seminary. <laughs> so, <laughs> a good way of doing it is old plastic uh, utensils, spoon, fork, knife, and write on those and stick them in each pot. Or this is an old blind from the window, and I take scissors and cut that in certain lengths and then stick it in the pot with the marker on it, and that keeps very well. And one of these will last you for years, and if any of you are short supply of this kind of thing, you're welcome to take this home with you. And then once you plant something in the garden, it is also good to label that with something similar or like this. Just write it on there. And if it only lasts you until it's high enough at a stage of growth, you could recognize it from the plant. But I, I've prepared beds and thought I planted there. But I, see, I got a phone call. And I went. And by the time that was over, I did something else. And on my way, I took out the scraps. And you know, then I, the lamb wanted to be bottle fed. And, you know, and I thought I planted it better than I didn't. And a week later, nothing's coming up. Two weeks later, and I'm thinking, maybe I never did put anything in there, right? <laughs> but when I plant it now, this gets a label and it goes in the ground. And I know that that part is finished. And if it doesn't come up, then I know what seed to throw away. Yeah. Okay. So uh, keeping good records, at least that much is very, very important. Some of you have asked about a lot of things that are in the garden syllabus. You could save yourself a lot of energy and my time if you go buy one of these. <laughs> and it, uh, I'll refer to a few things, not, uh, and which I should mention right now. You know, a speaker, this is what, to my knowledge, the only class that has the dispensations year after year at camp meeting where we can sell things because the ACBC carries the publications at a very minimal uh, profit margin, and that's really probably not a profit margin, but paying the help that's over there that you want to have help from when you go there. Um, but none of the proceeds of this kind of thing goes to the speakers. Uh, however, they, they don't want to handle hoes and uh, plants and gizmos like that, and so they let me share it with you. However, you should also know that when I buy this hoe for $10, it's yours for $10, okay? There's not like, uh, we're not making money on this kind of thing, probably losing it a little bit. Uh, and since I'm on the subject, this is my favorite hoe once I started using it uh, because it has a nice point that can get through the mulch that I plant. This, this broadside hardly goes through mulch. That one will enter the mulch. And if you get really good at your aim, which makes gardening a novelty and an interest, is you can get a dandelion root with that thing if you're really good. <laughs> but if you're not that good, it takes you a while. You break the ground, flip it over, and then take it out with the other side. Uh, this is actually my favorite tool. The older the hoe is, nearly, it has some age to it. It feels better, probably because it's lighter. And I also like a very short handle because I can work it with one hand. Uh, if, if I didn't have this one, I would have one that's about half that size in handle, 
but a wide front by taking an old hoe and cutting it off, which I do have, and I use that quite a bit. But I like this one because of its reach. It's a little bit more efficient for me in that sense, and I can use it for other things. Now, the better the ground is that you have, the easier it is to work. So that's what we're going to deal with a little bit today. And hoeing is one of those things. I, how many of you really enjoy the time that you spend hoeing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's just something to it in it. And, uh, but you want it to be easy, too. You don't want to be chopping really hard ground. If you have good ground, hoeing can be a very pleasure rhythmic, and you see results from your work. Uh, but if you want to get a hoe, then you get somebody, if you can't do it, and grind that edge so it's sharp. Not knife sharp, but sharp. Okay? So it goes in the ground easily. And I like to grind the back side, top here to be flat, this underside to be the sharp edge. It seems to cut well going into the ground. That and, you know, a rake that fits my handle length because I use it a lot. And I, when you bend over using a long-handled tool, uh, you know, it's longer and it's in your way and I tend to forget it's there and trip over it. This is a little easier, it's less obstruction for me as well as if you set it down somewhere like against the wall or a fence or something like that and happen to stand on that end. I don't know if you, any of you have seen stars that way. But <laughs> I have. And I thought, you know, if I cut that short, <laughs> it could still hurt you to heart, hurt, hurt, uh, not a good place, but it's <laughs> at least you'll live through it. <laughs> Dick. Yeah, they're, they're very good. Uh, he's talking about a hoe that would be about half the metal blade as this, I suppose, right? Those are excellent for putting it around the garden. This one is kind of a compromise because it's, it's not like one of those big African hoes uh, that I have. Someone gave to me, brought me back from Tanzania. They thought I really liked that thing, but it takes a real man to operate it. And 10 years ago, I could. Now it's, you know, I need something very light and easy. I like those small hoes, but they, they only cut and, and dabble. And sometimes I just need one tool that goes with me everywhere so I can hoe the potatoes and I can hoe the corn, I can hoe the squash, and I can cut the weeds. And that I find to be, if I had one tool, that's the one it would be. Uh, and the, so the, there's a number of these over there, and the tag from the place I purchased them is still on it, or the magic marker that indicates the price. It's, I think, $4 for the little ones and 10 for the long-handled colorful ones. Uh, and the handle lengths are different on those, so if you're going to pick one out, pick one out that suits you. Now, if you're running hoses around your garden, we talked about watering yesterday. I don't hardly ever have to water, and if you have good ground, lots of mulch, uh, it, and you plant correctly, or the way I recommend, then you don't have to water nearly so much, at least where I live. And where you live, it can be quite different, and I recognize that. And sometimes there's drought that come through. But toting around a hose can be hazardous to the health of a number of your plants. So I put stakes around any place where that hose is going to have a friction point or a turn point. And if you had a device, something like this, you can run your hoses here, and it catches it there. And you can put these strategically through your garden and keep a hose from ruining the, you know, three months of plants that you just 
stuck in there because you were paying attention to where you were and not where the hose was. Where do you get a gadget like that? I have no idea. No idea where you got it? Oh, I got it at a farm supply on a sale rack years ago, and uh, I've hardly ever used it because I don't have hardly water. So um, this is probably about $2 for somebody. It's the door prize. The door prize, yeah, for your perfect attendance this week. Uh, okay, we did the watering. Oh, and soaker hoses uh, work really good, too. And that way you don't have to move them around a lot. You just push them in position. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll get questions about hydroponics, and uh, I'm not in, into that very much because I just don't like the water turning green and makes me always wonder what else is growing in there that I'm not familiar with. The unknown is a little bit scary to me. It's like uh, scuba diving or something, you know, snorkeling. I don't know what's around the next rock. Uh, so, but if you have a hankering to do something like that, then I recommend going to a place. This is an ice cream place. Uh, near us, they give you free buckets, and uh, I cut the lids to a size that I like, and I have done some hydroponics, and I fertilized the water, cut the lid to the size of the container so the container sits there, doesn't go through, stick it on there, and come back a couple weeks later, and then you have your heads of lettuce. It's a very simple way of doing it, but I like ground. I like to stick my fingers in the ground. Uh, but if you're going to start a bunch of starts, and not have to water them for a long time. Then you do that, stick your plants, containers in it like that, stick it in the bucket, come back a couple weeks later. It saves you trouble for uh, watering. The other use I make out of these is uh, start my sweet potatoes this way, my sweet potato starts. Put some toothpicks in it like that. The sweet potatoes go down in the water, stay moist, a plenty and you never have to water them to get them to grow and then after a while you pull the sprouts off. They don't rot? No, they don't rot. Uh, they, they, sweet potatoes are pretty, well mine don't, I don't know. <laughs> I have a hard time getting my food to rot. <laughs> Throw it in the compost pile and you hope it'll rot. <laughs> no, it, it will eventually. But uh, no, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't in the water method. Uh, that is a little slower method than in the soil. So this is the other method. And sweet potato slips cost a lot of money. And they're extremely easy. And if you don't have your own sweet potatoes, then you go to a good natural food store and buy those organic sweet potatoes they have, spend the money for it, do this method, and you certainly will get a return on the number of slips that you have because a sweet potato might give you 20, 40 slips. We call the slips of loose starts. And uh, you know, this is in potting soil, sweet potatoes are cut in half in the length this way, and the flat ends laid down on a little bit of soil, covered with soil, and then watered freely. But every couple of days I come back and I need to water these again. So it's a little bit of a hassle, but it'll be a faster return. And then, of course, for the slips, you see the potato does the same thing. And it doesn't rot. You could probably eat this if you wanted to. It's that good yet. And then you take these, uh, and then the slips are rooting, and you just pop them off and stick them in the ground. That's it. Uh, and even if they're not individually rooted, and they're just a cutting almost, if it's good moist soil, it's high chance it'll root right like that. 
but I like to have roots on it when I stick it in the ground. <clears throat> and, you know, <clears throat> how far north will they go? Uh, that I'll show you in the slides uh, how I grow sweet potatoes, which is the rare thing where I grow, live. People don't grow sweet potatoes there, usually. Uh, but there's a way to do it. It's one of my favorite foods, and it's a excellent raw food. Uh, yeah, raw food. Here I was at a camp meeting in June, Alaska years ago, and I had another flat tire. And I've had a series of them, and so it's like, oh, great, flat tire. While I'm thinking about my tire, next to me was parked a truck, in the back of which had several crows. And so I thought, I'm going to hang around here and see who parked next to me. <clears throat> Turned out the air had been left out of my tire, but I was so thankful because there was no leak when I eventually got it fixed. This will need a little bit of air. And I thought, isn't that wonderful how the Lord works? Because I got to meet the guy who drove this truck, who wintered in Montana and summered in North Carolina. And that interested me a little bit. And he showed me how he could cut this fenders out with the back of the chainsaw blade and hook stuff to his truck. I mean, this guy was a mountain man. <laughs> and I said, uh, what are you going to do with all those crows? He said, would you like one? I said, yeah. So he said, meet me at breakfast at my campground tomorrow morning. So I went over there to get the crow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And while I'm talking to the man, one of his sons slips up to the picnic table and sneaks off a raw sweet potato. And the father sees it. He says, how many have you had? <laughs> I thought, Wow. This is good. So uh, I decided to learn how to grow sweet potatoes that were that good that a kid would want to get an extra one for breakfast raw. <laughs> and that started my endeavors. I don't know. I Probably North Carolina, but I don't know. I didn't get that part. I was so excited about the crow. <laughs> Why? Because the crow is about the best pet you could have if you don't mind the nuisance. About 4.15 every morning, it would peck on this roof of the house right above my side of the bed. <laughs> and then it would jump down on the clear story window and look in to see if I got up. If I didn't, it would go back and peck again. And if I wasn't getting up, it would come at the other window where the gutter was, swing upside down, look inside the window with the swings out like that. <laughs> It was no, it was no giving. You just had to give up and go outside. And we, about 4:30 every morning, were out in the garden. Wow. Well, the, it, it turned out domesticated because we were the ones that fed it. Yeah. And you can tame crows very well, and they uh, are one of the great uh, anti-evolutionary, thus the evolutionary theory because their intelligence exceeds their need for survival by so far. Uh, and if I couldn't have a crow, I'd have a raven, and I've had a raven as well. And they're very, very wonderful pets and great stories I could tell you, but that's not the purpose of you being here. So we, uh, <laughs> uh, I think that care, takes care of the household things. Oh, no, one more thing is if you use a pump sprayer for anything, label your pump sprayer and you only use it for that one thing. It's a dedicated sprayer. They're not ex that expensive. You can buy four of them if you have to. But this is my garden and greenhouse sprayer. And I don't label what's in it because there's only one thing that goes in it. So I don't have to label that. But I, if I 
use more than one, they would both be labeled as to what is in that sprayer. What do you put in so that one? That's hydrogen peroxide. What do you use it for? You going to be here tomorrow? All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll deal with insects and uh, diseases oh, tomorrow, okay, when we deal with plant nutrients. Try to draw okay? them out, right? <laughs> so I, I, you know, it's a bit scattered for me. And I think, uh, are you next then? Well, now, is this a good show, time for you? Yeah, we're going to show some of the DVDs first. Okay, let's take it. Okay. Now. Good to see everybody. Raise your hand if you brought your handout from yesterday. Oh, I'm impressed. I've been trying to get them to set this up so that we can put it on the screen, too, for those of you who weren't able to bring it. But because of our technical difficulties up here, not having a DVD player and can only set up one computer at a time, we're going to play a little bit from the DVD first. And it's maybe not going to make much sense to you because this is not the way I was going to do this. I was going to discuss with you something and then show you the DVD. But you're going to see all this DVD and not know what in the world is she doing. Just trust me, it'll all come together in the end. Um, the first one is going to be on Roundup, because Roundup is a chelator. A chelator binds minerals to it. How does Roundup kill weeds? Through the roots? Through the roots? Any Through the leaves. Okay, Roundup chelates the minerals in the soil. That means it binds them up. So those are no longer available to the weeds, and they die. So Roundup, we're going to watch this little bit of video right now on Roundup as a chelator. Are we ready? We're not ready. <laughs> okay. We're also going to watch a little bit on um, uh, allergies because one of the myths that the big ag companies will tell you is that our products are safe. Nothing will happen to you. Allergies? No way. Well, we're going to dispel that today, and you will be watching a little bit of video on allergies. Tell me when you're ready. You ready? Okay. So we're going to start with Roundup as a key leader. The active ingredient of Roundup is called and it was patented as an herbicide by Monsanto in 1974. But 10 years earlier, it was patented as a broad-spectrum chelator. Now, chelation is the molecular level of hugging and not letting go. The way that it kills weeds is it makes the nutrients unavailable to the plant so it weakens the defenses of the plant. Then it promotes the diseases in the soil, which end up killing the plant. Now, this means that plants treated with Roundup have a reduction in available nutrients. They're weak and they're sick. The animals that eat the nutrient-deficient plants, they become nutrient-deficient and weak and sick. Then we eat the animals and the plants that are nutrient-deficient, and we may become weak and sick. In addition, the residues of the Roundup in the plant can end up in our bodies 
where they can chelate, hug some of the nutrients that are in our bodies, making them less available as well. In areas, uh, very often right to the row specifically where the glyphosate was applied, those plants are getting sicker earlier. Uh, tissue tests are documenting uh, deficiencies in manganese, copper, and zinc. As a result, uh, the food is less nutritious. It's showing up in the animals, and glyphosate use is doing it, uh, and it's following and working its way right up the food chain. Those deficiencies are very well documented as being uh, factors in animal diseases as well as in human diseases. You really need a balance of all the nutrition, all the nutrients, to keep this physical body really functioning in all the areas because all of them are mutually supportive and interdependent. Basically, if you had one trace mineral and you were looking at a specific disease, you would see uh, an animal survive and respond to treatment, this type of thing. If you got two trace minerals that were deficient, you had a more virulent, in other words, a more aggressive disease pattern, even with the same identical disease. And when you got to the three elements that were severely deficient, then things really got serious. Uh, to the point that they probably wouldn't respond to treatment and we'd have a very, very high death loss. What do livestock in the United States eat? Roundup ready crops, roundup ready soy, corn, cottonseed, canola meal, sugar beet pulp, and now alfalfa. The bulk of their diet is roundup ready crops. And those crops are nutrient deficient and have high concentrations of Roundup. The glyphosate problem has a, a number of issues for us. And one of the... Okay, we're going to stop there. Um, because I'm going to talk about chelation in a little bit here. That's why we wanted to play that one. And if you can turn in your hand, and if you do have it, turn to page two, and right smack in the middle of that page, it says nutritional deficiencies in plants. I'm going to put this on the screen very shortly, but first we have to show, because of our technology and the way it's working today, we have to show the DVD first. But if you look at this, right smack in the middle of that page, you'll see some underlines. And you'll see glyphosate causes a percent reduction in nutrients. Do you see that? Look at the percent of reduction. Remember, glyphosate is chelating. It's binding those trace minerals. Nitrogen, 13%. Phosphorus, 15%. Calcium, 17%. Boron and zinc, 18. Copper, 20. Magnesium, 26. Manganese, 31. Potassium, 46. Iron, 49. Almost half the iron. Can you still hear me? Because this isn't sounding the way it was a few minutes ago. Um, almost half the iron is missing from that plant. That's astounding, isn't it? And last is sulfur. And as animals are consuming these, you can see how they would become deficient and sick. And then we consume animals or the plants, 
and we become deficient and sick. Maybe somebody here remembers. Is it called the Brax? Does that does Brax sound familiar? Brax or bricks? Bricks. It's bricks. Okay. It's been a few years since I looked at that, but I remember at one time I was looking at those BRICS readings. You can Google this, BRICS, B-R-I-X, and you will see um, the nutrient content of organic versus conventionally grown plants. And there is a whopping big difference. And one of the reasons for it is because of the chelation effect of glyphosate. It is ruining our soil. Not only is it chelating what's in the soil, but it's also killing bacteria in the soil, which is their normal home. So we are really losing our soil because of this. Okay, have we found that next one, the allergy? We're going to look I have a son who has severe food allergies. I got the food allergies back in 09, August 25th, 2009 to be exact. And I have literally, from that day forward, have been on a mission trying to figure out how did my son get these food allergies. But I found out that our food supply is genetically modified. And guess what? The food that my son ate on August 25th, 2009 was raw corn. The corn that almost killed him. All I could hear him go is, and the itching, I'm like, what the heck is going on? And he has turned red, he couldn't breathe properly. Um, I, I, I was in panic, I called 911, I, I was just like, I think my son's having a food allergy attack. <laughs> okay. And um, I immediately took him to the doctors, and I, um, I got all these tests done, and sure enough, he's deadly allergic to corn now. 25, 30, 35 years ago, no one was allergic to anything. And now you have allergies. I have people with black pepper that couldn't have black pepper today. There's, you know, celiacs that have wheat, gluten allergies. Uh, people that have allergies to, of course, you know, the basics like uh, dairy and seafood, but everything. I have people that are allergic to parsley and, and just re regular natural chlorophyll plants. And we're talking about food. Food's become harmful. How did that happen? So when you link it to the GMO issue, it resonates like you would not believe. Patients with allergies, I try to keep them away from GMO foods because they'll react to them. And uh, they'll tell you that. It's my fourth child who has food allergies. We have no family history of this. I knew that I had taken care of myself through every pregnancy the exact same way. And as friends kept saying, what did you do differently? What did you do differently? I had no answer. And suddenly in learning of this relationship between GMOs and food allergies, I finally had my answer. And in learning about genetically modified foods, I was also able to do something about it. And literally within a 24-hour period, our, we, we cleaned out the entire kitchen. There were the items that we had been feeding our children for the last six years, we just literally threw into the trash. And so at first where I was excited and I was relieved at having discovered all of this, I then went through a really hard stage where I, I, I just cried because I thought, what have I done to my children and what has been done to them without my consent? 
And I have kids who are allergic to every food group. How is that possible? And not just a few of them, quite a few of them. Almost impossible to manage. Moms are coming and saying, what do I feed my kid? I have seen firsthand exponential growth in allergies. And yet, when I improve the quality of my patients' diets, meaning prescribing a non-GMO diet, prescribing organic food, their symptoms go away. In most of my patients, because they have some sort of immune or inflammatory response to the GMO foods, I have to take them off of the non-GMO foods that are related. So I have to take them off of all corn. I have to take them off of all grains because my experience is, is that once the immune system has been inspired to have a response that they react you know, to GMO and non-GMO. So I had a healthy patient come in, 30-year-old woman, who told me now when she eats any food, her skin literally overheats. Literally anything that she's eating is causing a problem in her skin. And she says to me, what could this be? Well, what we do is we take her off of all of the food that she's eating, and she starts back adding in highest quality organic foods in their base forms, right? As she's doing that, she suddenly is getting better. You know, we might have to use enzymes or other things to help her, but as she starts to get better, guess what? When we add back in corn or soy, she can consume it if it's not genetically modified. I'm concerned about all the health issues that I'm seeing, but the one that I am I'm going to show that one tomorrow, and hopefully we'll have better a better setup up here. Um, if we can get my um, papers up, then we can continue. There was a good question. Somebody asked, how long does this, this glyphosate remain in the soil? I recently heard a lecture about that. And if we stopped using Roundup right now, it would take between 30 and 40 years. But currently, billions of pounds of this stuff is being pumped into soil around the, the, the world. Okay, I was going to put this up in case yeah, no, somebody no. forgot to bring theirs today. And I want to go right to page two. Yesterday, we learned that there are two ways that plants are modified. One way is being modified to round up so that, well, let's say, let's say this is a corn plant. Where, oh, Mark. Okay, so this is a corn plant growing, and we want to be able to kill the weeds around it. So if we modify this corn plant so that Roundup will not kill it, we can kill all the weeds around it, the corn will stay growing. That's GM corn, GM soy, GM, mm, uh, there was a whole list of them that I gave you, canola, Actually, cottonseed is BT'd. That's why I, BT is the second way. It's the second technology. And how many of you have used Dipel? Anybody ever used Dipel to kill corn worms? <laughs> we used to use it pretty freely. Um, it's from a bacteria in the soil. And we would sprinkle that around on the corn, and the, the worms would die. Why did they die? They ate the stuff, and it pierced their intestinal lining, and they died. 
Well, that was pretty simple way to get rid of them. However, now they actually take that dipel, that BT, they insert it into each cell of the corn. So every time you take a bite of corn, you are ingesting BT, dipel, this toxin that killed the insects. And it has been found that when we eat corn this way, we are getting a thousand times more BT dipel than we did when we sprinkled it around or sprayed it around. A thousand times more. And the question is, what is it doing to us? I'm going to answer that on Thursday. We're going to do nothing but talk about our microbiome, our gut, and what these products are actually doing to us. It will knock the socks off of you, so come back and bring a friend. Okay, now, to proceed, we're on page two. Um, This is the myth. GM foods are safe to eat. Now, GM foods do not have to be tested. We went over that yesterday. They don't have to be tested because they're called natural. Are they natural? No, there's no way that God designed this. So, in fact, many uh, around the world, many, many countries don't even allow this stuff to come into their borders. But we do, and we make it. I wanted to look at quickly at the toxicity of GM foods to animals. Most of the testing Monsanto figured out, I told you Mons, uh, testing was not mandatory, but it is voluntary. And so they do voluntary testing. But they soon found out if they did the testing over long periods of time, diseases would show up. So, okay, in the laboratory working with the mice and rats, they would do the testing, short-term testing for three or four weeks. Did anything show up? No. When they fed the rats genetically modified feed for mm, a half a year, did anything show up? No. But when, when independent groups looked at this genetic feed and fed it to the animals, they did it for long term, a year or more, and guess what showed up? I think I wrote down some of the things that showed up here. Yeah. It's point number two. Independent, long-term, two-year animal feeding studies using GM and GMBT foods showed severe liver, kidney, pancreas damage with reproductive problems, changes in the uterus, the odor ovaries, infertility, atrophy of the testicles of the rats. In fact, they turn blue. And the death of sperm cells. The animals suffered from stomach lining deterioration, high levels of E. coli bacteria, How do high levels of E. coli get into our small intestine? They get there from the large intestine. If there is damage between the valve from the small to the large, you're going to get something called SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And that's what was happening to the animals. And, of course, allergies. And I told you about my allergy experience and why I got into studying this yesterday. There were malignant tumors at multiple sites and significant numbers of birth defects or dead offspring. 
Okay, let's look at the nutritional deficiencies. We've already looked at this. Um, we saw how it's grave, isn't it? And we, we saw the field where glyphosate is sprayed a second year or a third year. The, the, the soil is so poor. And what actually happens, and we'll discuss this later, is super weeds uh, grow. Yep. Super weeds are so thick. They have the stem mark is the thickness of a baseball bat. And the columbines break. They can't get rid of these things. They're covering vast portions, over 75% of our farmland now. Super weeds. Okay. I want to go on to GM myth number five. Oh, please do. Would you like to be mic'd? No, Illinois, we can't. See, they can't because this is being recorded. So five minutes or so would that work? How much more time? Oh, okay. Please. These very minerals that you see here, uh, magnesium, manganese, potassium, calcium, and sulfur, are your alkaline-producing uh, minerals in the body. Right. So when these are deficient, the body becomes more acidic. And then you have difficulty even absorbing uh, the foods. And so you become ill from Thank that. you. Thank you very much. Really important. They, manganese important. also, you'll see manganese has been underlined a couple of times. That is instrumental in producing what's called SOD, superoxide dismutase, which is the strongest natural anti-inflammatory in the body. Mm -hmm. it, it is every bit, it will work every bit as well as some of the pharmaceutical anti-inflammatories. And SOD is found especially in uh, barley green. Some of you may have used that product. And a lot of people who have arthritis like that product because of the SOD, S-O-D, superoxide dismutase. You need manganese to make that. Okay, we have to move on. Myth number five, why GM animal feed poses no risks to animal or human health since GM proteins are broken down during digestion. You are going to have to read most of this on your own, but I wanted to, to hit something here. Um, yeah, it's the third point. Bt toxin was found in the blood of 93% of pregnant women and 80% of their unborn children. Now, if Bt toxin is getting into blood or into the, into the through the placental barrier, it's going from the gut when you first eat the corn. It's going through a leaky gut into the blood and into the placenta. It's not breaking down, folks. That is a myth that it breaks down. Look at the next talking point. Glyphosate is building up over time in women's bodies. Testing for the toxin in mother's milk revealed high levels in three out of ten samples. I'm talking about high, high levels. The levels were 760 to 1,600 times higher than the European Union drinking water directive allows. That is huge. And we wonder why our children are sick with allergies and autism and other things. There may be a real strong connection here. 
Look at myth number six. No one has ever been made ill by this. Um, I'll let you read that on your own. The last talking point under that point says, in 1989, 37 Americans died and 1,500 others suffered muscle pain and paralysis by a food supplement, L-tryptophan. It was produced using a GM bacteria, most likely E. coli. I'm just finishing up now. You want me to finish right this minute? Minute yeah. Yeah. Okay, Whatever. let me finish this up. I'm going to wind it up today. We've talked a little bit about BT, the, the myth number seven, GMBT crops only harm insects and are harmless to animals and people. You can read about all of this. We, that's why I was talking a little bit about Dipel. Look at all, in talking point number two there, look at the various things that have happened in animal studies. Damage to liver, kidney, spleen, holes in the small intestine, blood abnormalities, high blood sugar, high blood pressure. Damage to male reproductive organs, lower birth rates, infertility, disturbances in the immune function, increased infection. Worldwide, thousands of livestock have died after they feed on this stuff. You're not being told that, though. I think that is where we will end. I want to pick up the next time on um, the health hazards on page four, we've already looked at uh, infant exposure. Tomorrow I want to tell you about hexane and acetone solvents being used in organic infant uh, foods. Shocking, isn't it? Organic. I am going to. I beg pardon. Uh, can you see? I have no more. The only way you can get any more of these is to email me, and I will email you this. Okay. My email address is sueblake at mindspring.com. That's the only way I have no more. But I'll be glad to email it to you. Mind as in brain, and spring as in. Bling. <laughs> Thank you, Sue, for those encouraging words. <laughs> <laughs> really important, though, isn't it? Uh, is there anybody else that was invited to share something with us today that I've forgotten and who is here? Okay, we get to, we'll just go ahead and roll. All right, great. Thank you so much. A uh, picture I took from somebody's roof. I just love leaves. Um, let me just double-check here what we got. I think we've covered everything we need to. All right. Yeah, we did that. All right. Catching up from yesterday, about a third of what has grown globally is not consumed because we want our produce to be homogenous and uniform in shape and perfect and without blemish. But let me ask you, does it taste better because it looks better? I went by the, it, the store yesterday and took a picture of the display and thought, well, that is really, really pretty. That doesn't look like my apples exactly. But, you know, I went to the produce man and uh, he likes my wife and me, and he gave us, he has over 100 acres of strawberries. And he gave us some. And I took them home because I knew my wife really likes strawberries, and they're big, beautiful strawberries. But I don't think painted cardboard would have tasted any worse. And we threw them away. And I'm thinking, what a waste of 
resources. And I don't really think that it's a beauty contest uh, that's going on, but to some people it is. Now, we probably can skip all this because you are uh, probably, you know, talking to the choir here about industrial farming. Um, so I'm going to skip that except to this one point where we deal with the monocultures that require less knowledge. That is like one crop. The guy's growing one big crop a year or something like that or big areas of one crop. It's easier and less expensive because everything is focused on that one crop. <clears throat> but what happens if that crop fails? Like bananas, there are about a thousand varieties of wild bananas in the world, but 95% of them are uh, is one type of banana that's exported. That's the Cavendish. It's cloned, genetically identical. There are no seeds in it. You know, we don't like seeds in our bananas. So Americans eat more bananas and apples than apples and oranges together. It's the most valuable fruit in the world. It's really not a fruit. It's a botanical herb. But uh, nevertheless, what happens if it gets hit by a disease that, which we have had hit a number of times, nearly wiping out our banana industry? Uh, it could be significant economic problems around the world because of that, and it can happen. They're trying to develop a banana that's tolerant against the biggest disease threat that they get, but there's a better method, and that's one we know. God is trying to lead us back step by step to the original design that man should subsist upon the natural products of the earth. The book was Banana Wars. Banana Wars, the book. And 50 years we won't have bananas because of that issue, unless it's Lucifer. Yeah, a disease that wipes out the banana industry. It's possible. So a few uh, about two weeks ago, I decided to. You know, people love pictures, so I decided to go get this phone I had and see if I could take some pictures of gardens in the area. Now, these gardens I'm going to show you about a thousand feet lower than where I live. That's one, and that's another one. See if you see anything in common about these gardens. That's a little better, isn't it? That's the guy who has something growing in it, and he's got wood chips all over the place. He's trying it. We live near a university. This is near a university, and students are somewhat innovative. And then I went home. I want to circle your garden with flowers. They're good for you. And uh, there's our house garden, the table garden, part of it. And you see the raised beds, and there's my wife's herb garden, and some blueberries and bush cherries and oh, I don't, elderberries and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you need to come tomorrow if you have a question like, Rabbits. <laughs> Did you see a rabbit in the picture? <laughs> it could have been because they, they used the garden as a uh, thoroughfare somewhere. Uh, cabbage, uh, I grow under, because today is about uh, productivity from your garden. So uh, we'll get to the soil, but here's cabbage. I don't deal with sprays and dusts for cabbage worms. Nothing goes on my cabbage except maybe diatomaceous earth if I get a little lazy and forget to cover them. But Pretty much they live under that netting. It's a very fine white cloth. And, uh, you know, the moths can't lay, uh, lay their eggs on them this way. And there they're tunneled. 
uh, tomatoes in the greenhouse. There's two, I show you this so that you can see two different methods. There's some that are strung and then you get tied mostly with shoelaces onto those uh, horizontal strings, wires that are between stakes, and then the backside is cages. Uh, last week I picked uh, our first pepper and our first tomato this year. Uh, but two weeks before that it snowed. So that's not too bad. Uh, peas always grow them in a row. This is one thing I use as an exception to rows. Sometimes when they, if you grow them in bunches, they get all tangled up and you miss a lot of peas when you're trying to pick them. So that's one thing I'll grow in a row. Uh, if you need to heat where we do to get soil warm, black plastic works really well. If you put transplants in, pull the black plastic back, tuck it under, or put a board there or something so that the flaps of the plastic don't get whipped by wind and then hurt your transplants. Uh, there's the potatoes. You know, learn from a Ukrainian how to plant potatoes. They grow a lot of them over there. And it's throw the whole potato in the ground. Unless it's a large one, then cut it and make sure it dries, uh, the cut dries before you throw it in the soil. And that way it scabs over and enough it won't uh, pick up a disease as easily. But he, he did it where you, you put the shovel in the, gr in the ground and moved it, threw a potato in, threw that shovel load on the previous hole, and he worked his way across. Well, I work with two people, so I put my shovel in the ground, pull it that way, someone throws a potato in, I pull the shovel out. It takes a lot less work that way. Uh, and plant a row of potatoes. But the, the preparation for potatoes, since white potatoes grow which direction? Up, sweet potatoes go down. So dig a little trench. If your ground is soft and easy to work, you can dig a little trench and put the ground on the side so that when you hoe the first several times, you're not having to pull a lot of dirt. It's really simple to just keep covering your potato plant, and it makes it a lot easier to dig your potatoes as well. And you ought to be able to dig your potatoes by hand. If you happen to use a shovel, your ground needs more work. Same with sweet potatoes. Uh, I do hoe. I hoe potatoes at least once. Sometimes twice, if I don't know what to do with my time, I'll hoe potatoes three times. But when I said yesterday about spending an hour in the gardens taking care of them in a week's time, it's because I want the weeds to grow. Because the weeds tell you what your soil is like. And until you get to a certain place, you want the weeds to grow because then you know what the soil needs by studying the plants that are growing there. And so in the table garden, you see there's not going to be any weeds. You know, because that's just doesn't take the ground is to the point where weeds don't really grow there very much. And when you go out to do something, you never pass up a good weed. You know, yank it out. Uh, but uh, in the field gardens, the weeds are going to grow, partly because of the redeeming the soil it takes a little bit of time. And so what I do is I usually hoe the corn and the potatoes and the pumpkin patch around the main plants and let the weeds grow between those areas. And then two, three times over the period of the summer, I take the weed whacker out there and knock them off before they go to seed. And they provide you free nutrients to your soil. So it's a lot easier way of managing your time. This is a sweet potato row. You'll see it has a hoop over it. There's several in a line and then some places that uh, will support the plastic that I cover it with. Those, those rows are ready for sweet potatoes, but I won't plant them until after camp meeting. It's a tropical plant, so it likes hot weather, so it won't grow where we live, typically. 
well, it'll grow, but it won't make much of a sweet potato, more like a fingerling or something like that. So under plastic, you have increased humidity, temperature. Once in a while, I go in there and crawl down the row and check everything, see it's what I like. And if, if it grows too, your sweet potatoes are growing and you're not getting the bulk and size that you want out of them, they're not a heavy feeder, so you don't want to give them much food. Uh, but they just need good soil to grow in. Uh, lift up the vines, because everywhere the knuckle of a leaf uh, sets on the ground, it'll set down a root. And that puts energy into making more potatoes. And you want the potatoes mostly to go back to the center plant that you put there in the ground. So every week or two, just go lift up the vines, and that'll increase the size of your sweet potatoes. All right, this is what the Adventists know that uh, your, your neighbors don't. We cooperate with the laws of God in how we uh, do our gardening. And you know what the laws are, right? Nutrition, exercise, water, sunshine, temperance, air, rest, and trust in divine power. So when you garden, I want you to think in terms of the same thing you would do for your body to restore health and to manage all your resources. And so we, this is why it says... Go quickly here. In the cultivation of the soil, the thoughtful worker will find that treasures little dreamed of are opening up before him. No one can succeed in agriculture or gardening without attention to the laws involved. Special needs of every variety of plant must be studied. Different varieties require different soil and cultivation and compliance with the laws governing each is the condition of success. The attention required in transplanting that not even a root fiber should be crowded or misplaced. The care of the young plants, the pruning and watering, the shielding from frost at night, sun by day, keeping out weeds, disease, and insect pests, training and arranging. It sounds like something you really got a hands-on about, isn't it? And so, you know, you may want to rotate your crops, and then again, you may not, because you made the soil just for that one particular crop. And if that soil is suited for that crop, and that crop loves that soil, it's going to be stronger and healthier more disease-resistant, more pestilent-resistant. So I don't rotate crops. Hardly ever do I move a crop unless there's a disease or pestilence infestation. You may want to put the one crop like uh, red beets. You might want to plant them three different places just in case one gets infested. You're not ruining your whole crop, something like that. But you want to think in terms of how do I make this plant grow here well? Because if you look at your property, you'll have pokeweed growing over there, and you'll have some kind of bare raspberries growing over there. And they're not raspberries aren't everywhere, and and uh, goldenrod isn't everywhere, and chicory isn't everywhere. It's over there. And so why does it grow there? Because it likes it there, or it's needful there. So you can do the same with intentionally with what you want to harvest. So let's start with nutrition. If you're new at gardening, you want to get a, uh, or using new ground, you want to get a soil sample. And in the syllabus is a good place to look for where you can get one at a reasonable cost. It's very, very good. You want your pH range to be between 5 and 7. And if you don't know how to do that, you want to get the syllabus and figure out how from that. And you want your, (laughs) you're going to hear it a lot. (laughs) Get the book. Uh, your humus, you want it to be about 5%, and your EC score, you want it to be about 20 to 25. And it's easily explained and easily, easy, easily accomplished. Now, I'm bivocational. I 
I'm a handyman tree uh, person. Uh, for I do one thing for a living and one thing for a life. And that's what I do for a living. And I was a, contracting a house, uh, remodeled a house that took us about, I think it was 24, 25 weeks. It was a big job. And so I had a lot of subcontractors coming through. And over time, they kind of knew that I didn't swear and that we prayed. They saw us pray before we start and at the end of the day. And, you know, we, they knew we were a little different. And this one guy said he wanted to come by on Saturday to do some work. I said, it won't work. You'd have to come some other day. Why not? Because uh, we don't work on Sabbath. Oh, so you go to church on Sabbath? Saturday? Yeah, go to church on Saturday. He said, well, I go to church on Sunday. Now, that surprised me because his mouth was... Uh, <clears throat> he had expletives that I'd rarely heard. And uh, so I thought, well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you do. I said, you must have a good reason. He said, well, no, not really. He said, I guess, you know, my folks, they went to church on Sunday, and their folks went to church on Sunday. I guess it, so that's why I go to church on Sunday. I said, well, you know, I admire you, Jim. I said, I'm not that big a risk taker. <laughs> when the judgment comes and the Lord says, why didn't you honor me by keeping my Sabbath like I told you? I'd want to have a better reason than that. And if, I <laughs> and if I was going to start gardening on new ground, I would like to know more about it. So get a soil sample, okay? Let God's glory be kept ever in view. And if the crop is failure, be not discouraged, try again. But remember that you can have no harvest unless the ground is properly prepared for the seed. Failure may be wholly due to neglect on this point. Earnestness, diligence, and persevering labor are to be put forth in treating the soil preparatory to sowing the seed. It's also in your syllabus. So the soil, we've got to mineralize the soil. My favorites for mineralizing are granite dust or fines from a quarry, calcitic lime, not dolomite lime. Uh, you might need it, but uh, calcitic lime, probably you need more soft rock phosphate, and kelp, and organic alfalfa pellets. They work really well. Now, people are asking me about mulch and compost. On this, there's a lot about it in, this, in the syllabus. But when you mulch, you put it on top of the soil, and it requires nitrogen to decompose. So your carbon-nitrogen ratio is very important. Most manures have a good ratio, carbon to nitrogen, but most Organic matter like weeds and leftover plants, things like that, do not have enough nitrogen. Now, there's 38,000 pounds of nitrogen over every square foot of this planet. 38,000 pounds of nitrogen. So there's a lot of it out there. And the plants get 80% of the nutrients from the air and 20% from the ground. But a lot of people are trying to feed the plant. Forget feeding your plants. Feed your soil. And the plant will take what it wants at the time of its stage that it wants it. Like a buffet at potluck. You plan ahead. Say, you know, I'm going to want that and that and that. That's what I'm going to take. And that's when you need it. Okay. 
Always take your dessert first if the ladies will let you. <laughs> Life is really unsure, and I tell you, it'll help you lose weight. Because what we typically do is eat a full meal, and then we add the calories of the dessert. If you eat the dessert first, you're satisfied sooner, and you, you eat less. <laughs> now, compost, you make it, and then you work it into the soil. But you don't want to do it over winter because everything needs to rest. And if it's not a gardening time of year, then don't put your compost in the soil that time of year. Put it in soil later, like early spring. Um, and it's ready to use when the earthworms are living in it or when it doesn't smell bad. <clears throat> Ten minutes. Great. We have plenty of time. Uh, this is where I get my manure. Some of you use manures. Uh, I would want to know where the source of the manure was. This is uh, our first introduction of Lamborghini to the rest of the livestock. My son's a uh, person likes vehicles, and uh, I named it Lambie, and he named it Lamborghini. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you know what your livestock is eating and you handle their manures properly, it's a very good resource for nitrogen as well as some other elements. But if you don't know the source of your manures, do not use them. Uh, I had a cousin use some manure that she bought at the, uh, one of the big box stores in one of those bags and uh, put it into her garden and... Uh, it was killing plants. And so she called the ag office, got extension man, and he said, uh, what did you do and where did you get it? And he said, well, that's an easy thing. He says that we put herbicides on pasture land. And the cows eat that. And we collect their manure, and it doesn't break down, and we put it in our gardens and kill our plants. So know the sources of your manure. Also, make sure it's well composted. If manure isn't well composted, you can put it on top of the soil. But if you're putting it into the soil, it should be well composted. So rarely does manure move from our farm to the gardens. It moves from our farm to a compost pile, and then next year it goes on to the soil. It also gives it a chance to go through a heat and get rid of some weed seeds that are there. Uh, the next natural remedy we have is exercise, that, so till deep. You think, well, aren't you a proponent of no-till method? Yeah, once you get your ground good shape. Until then, you're going to have to till. And when you till, um, air gets into the soil, but that's the exercise part. Get the, get the soil to move. It stimulates it. it. It makes it just work better. You know, it gets the blood circulating type of thing. Um, if you get to the point where you don't have to till your soil because you can just take your hands through it, uh, then, you know, it'll, it, it can get a little hard to just take every year, just take a shovel and chop it, or um, every couple years, then just flip it. Because good elements like calcium work their way down, they're heavy, and you want those to be back up, and when they come back up, then they're going to move down again, and that movement of the elements and the change of electrical current, which is in the syllabus, uh, makes your plants grow. And that's the objective of planting a garden, making things grow. Uh, water needs about one inch per week, which is about 75 gallons per 100 square feet of gardening, which is quite a bit of water, isn't it? So if you can take a shovel and go down 6 to 12 inches, depending on if you're growing tomatoes or if you're growing you know, parsley, 
or something, you, how deep do you want that moisture to be? It ought to be down there where the roots are wanting it, and uh, you can test it. Water should also be consistent. If you are thirsty right now, you're partially dehydrated. You don't want your plants to get dehydrated. It may toughen them up a little bit, but they prefer and thrive at this consistency. And when would you water? What time of day would you water? Morning, why would you water in the morning? Because it'll dry off. Uh-huh. We often plant in the evening because they had a hot day, they look thirsty, we'll give them some water. And then you have moisture on your plants and then it sets them up for receiving uh, um, diseases. So they, you know, mornings are the best. And uh, actually most of your plant growth takes place early morning, about the time you're getting up probably for an hour or two. Okay, so what about planting? Groupings or rows? Scatter your groupings. Let's see, we're going to skip that. Uh, how many onions do you think are in that three by five box? 300. 300. Uh huh. You don't need a lot of space to grow stuff. And why would you crowd them up that way? Well, you know, you're going to eat some, and you just eat every other one. And let the rest. Keep growing. You need six to eight hours of sunshine a day, and uh, preferably you want morning sun if you can position your garden for that. Temperance, avoid anything that's going into the ground that would destroy soil life. And all the good stuff you put in the ground, think moderation as well. Because a little might be good, but a lot might not be any better. Guy, a neighbor was fertilizing a hay field a few weeks ago, and the uh, spreader tipped over and spilled fertilizer. And it was shoveled up but uh, couldn't get it all up, and it killed all the vegetation in that circle. Now, around that circle, it's really growing. <laughs> but where the circle, where it fell, it's all dead. So we even go easy on good stuff. Now, this is important. Position your garden where, you can, where it can get air. And how's it going to get air in the soil? You know, if you have a transplant, the two things that will destroy it is sunshine and air because the roots do not want sunshine and air directly. But they, they, they need sunshine and air. So what about air in the soil? And Thursday, I'll show you how to get air into a soil with container gardening that will save a lot of trouble for watering and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but pay attention to this, that tunneling, tunneling from one earthworm can create a drainage system equal to 2,000 feet of six-inch pipe in one year. In order to travel, eat, get air, earthworms tunnel. They digest dirt, essentially, transferring subsoil up, topsoil down. So they're doing the tilling for you, lining the tunnels with an excretion that tends to hold the shape, making places for water, insects, and plant roots to travel. And earthworms eat weed seeds. Isn't that wonderful? They don't live in soil low in calcium, and they don't like very acid soil, so ensure that calcium is up. pH is where it needs to be. Now, earthworm castings are the best manure you can get, averaging five times the nitrogen, seven times the phosphorus, 11 times more potash than the soil. 15 tons of soil passes through one earthworm every year. At 500,000 earthworms per acre, that's 50 tons of castings added to your field free of charge. So aim for one earthworm per shovel. Two missions. Rest. 
uh, there's much mourning over unproductive soil. When if men would read the Old Testament scriptures, they would see that the Lord could do much better than they in regard to the proper treatment of the land. After being cultivated for several years and giving her treasure to the possession of the man, portions of the land should be allowed to rest and the crops should be changed. So an easy way to do that is to divide your garden into seven sections, rotate the sections, or use part of it one year and then you don't use that bed that year. Use it next six years and then give it a rest and you can give your soil a rest. You don't have to stop gardening every seventh year. Just don't use every part of your garden every year. Okay? And then trust in God. You're not working alone when you're treat, tempted to become discouraged. Remember that the angels of God are right around you. They will minister to the very earth, causing it to give forth its treasures. Yeah, I think the Lord will work despite you rather than because of you. You know, he does for me. And I just thought that was a great picture of dandelions that are not in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> I love them when they're not there. <laughs> okay, let's have prayer. Lord, we appreciate so very much the wonders of your grace and the wonders of your creative genius and our privilege to just participate with you in such miraculous thing of life and its growth. Teach us to, to be more responsible, to uh, consider it the privilege and to do our best to glorify you thereby in Christ's name. Amen.